0: Hey guys, Pastor Kid here. I'm kind of excited to share this episode with you. We're going to be talking about the origins of Christmas and was it a pagan holiday originally and has it been try- uh, copped by the church or is it the opposite? Uh, the intention of this special uh, podcast is to help you along in your Christmas season to focus your heart and keeping Christ at the center of it. And so I'm excited about the episode, so let's get right to it. We've got a special podcast for the Christmas season, and it's really about the true origins of Christmas. And my subtitle for this is pretty straightforward, based upon literal, excuse me, legitimate scholarship, not internet mythology. Because as you know, this time of year, there's lots of discussion on the Internet about the pagan origins of Christianity and how Christians just took over a holiday that was worshipping Greek gods and things like that in order to reclaim them for their own use and give them excuses for having debauched holiday parties, etc. There's lots of different versions. One scholar puts it this way: uh, There is much discussion online at this time of year to the presumed pagan origins of Christmas. December 25th, we're told, was a date stolen from pagan worship, specifically from the festival of the, quote, birth of the unconquered sun, end quote, which is known as the Sol Invictus, or the Saturnalia, the honoring of the god Saturn. Should Christians have Christmas trees? What about Yuletides and the Norsemen? and these other different mythologies associated with it. And so what I decided to do is to get some real scholars. And I've gathered five different scholars who are renowned for their field of expertise. One is Dr. William Tehe. He is the associate professor of history at Muhlenberg College in Allentown, Pennsylvania. He wrote an article on calculating Christmas and the story behind December 25th. Also, Dr. Thomas J. Talley, The Origins of the Liturgical Year, and that has been peer-reviewed and published in academic publisher, as well as in articles. Then Roger T. Beckwith, if you know anything about Old Testament scholarship, he's one of the big names in that, conservative evangelical scholar. And another one from the Church of Christ scholar, Kenneth McIntosh, and he has his credentials both in English as well as in theology. Sharp guy. And then my... One of my favorites is uh, Dr. Michael Heiser and his 30-page PDF entitled, Is Christmas a Pagan Holiday? So putting all these together, we're going to get actual information. And so what I'd like to do today is just begin by talking, uh, reading to you little excerpts from these articles and commenting on them so that you really have... uh, legitimate information in dealing with this issue. Because if you're like me, you get tired of hearing it, and it, it just starts to irritate you because it's, when you, whenever you ask them further up questions, oh, it's after the Feast of Saturn Saturnalia, yeah? So when do they do that feast, actually? And they can't give you the dates because it's not December 25th, surprise, surprise, and things like that. So anyways, I'll give you some of the hardcore data, and you can use it for your friends at, uh, you know, debates around Christmas time parties, and it'd just be nice. Anyways, we'll start with uh, this guy, uh, Kenneth McIntosh. This is what he writes. He says, if you Google or AI something about the origins of Christmas, you're going to come down with the most commonly repeated answer, and it's everywhere. The common answer you're going to come across on the internet is that there was a Roman pagan solstice holiday, which had become the celebration of Christmas. It's all over the internet this time of year. But the actual assertion of that is fairly recent. It really comes to us from James Frazier's very popular book, quote, The Golden Bow, published in, catch this, 1890, as though scholarship has not advanced anywhere for, for the last 133 years. I think it has. Anyways, they keep going back to it. And when it was published, he notes, this book, which was a radical reappraisal of mythology and religion. In other words, it was in its day known to be uh, leftist in its origin, and it was intended to be a hit, shop, hit job on the Christian faith. That's what that means when he says a reappraisal of the mythology. And then he goes on, when it was published, it, it became absolute orthodoxy today to many people. Anyone in that field, like, you know, the late, great Joe Campbell, who is very respectable, they would constantly riff off of Frazier, And basically, this view that the Roman celebration of the solstice became Christmas was repeated over and over, and it's repeated by a thousand websites now. So the popular orthodoxy it, and the proper or popular cultural consensus is that it's a ripoff of a pagan holiday. However, having said that, it's not the scholarly consensus. In fact, Dr. David Gwyn, lecturer in ancient antiquities and history at the Royal Holloway University in London says, quote, "The majority of modern scholars would be reluctant to accept any close connection between the Saturnalia and emergence of the Christian Christmas." In other words, Right now, the popular consensus is, yeah, they ripped off the pagans. But the fact is, scholars who know best, who actually have access to documents in the time period and have looked at the connections, find that it's actually not true at all. And then he goes on to say, it's a hugely repeated view. The specifics, however, don't work. There are two different Roman solstice holidays, which it is claimed that, If you read these sites, it's one or the other, and it was kind of murky, but their claim is that it was Saturnalia, the wild carousing holiday parties of the Romans' celebration of the sun god Saturn. And so they would connect it to Sol Invictus and the wild Roman celebration of the sun itself. So you have these two that are competing, and that becomes important as how this holiday evolves in Rome. The problem here is when we go to Saturnalia, from which you get the word Saturn, this is the worship of Saturn, was December 17th to the 23rd, and details matter. I'm still quoting from his article. You have to fudge a couple of days here to make it fit, and there is no evidence whatsoever that it was ever elongated to go into the 25th. It wasn't a big deal on the 25th. There's no record of it. So it doesn't fit. You know, it's so close that you can see why people want to make it work, but it doesn't really precisely fit. And then the other problem is with Sol Invictus, the conquering of the sun, which I'll detail in, in another moment. But we know when the holiday began, it was decreed by emperor in 274, important date, 274. The problem is the Christians were celebrating December 25th as the birthday of Jesus 40 years earlier than that date. If anything, Sol Invictus came after the celebration of the Christian mass known as Christmas rather than the reverse. So the details don't work. Now I'm going to be reading some other scholars and explain exactly what that connection is. And so he asked this question, and this is fascinating. Why December 25th? Well, because there are two early Christian fathers who wrote specifically about this. And they asked the question, when was, now, now this is a very important phrase, when was the light of the world brought into this world? And they began to discuss that amongst themselves and many other early church theologians. And their conclusion was, if we understand Genesis chapter one correctly, then the proper time would be March 25th. You say, how do you get March 25th? Here's what they're doing. Now, I'll I'll quote again. Hippolytus writing in 325 and Cyprian in 243 are writing about the celebration or the coming of light into the world. The reason for December 25th is that it's exactly nine months from the vernal equinox, and that's why the date. And the vernal equinox on the Julian calendar, not the Gregorian, which got changed later, the ancient Roman calendar was March 25th. So you take March 25th, count the days, and you get to December 25th. And so they're dating everything from the equinox. And so that that raises the question, why are they dating it from the equinox? And the answer is, you have to go back and ask this basic question. And that is, when did God bring light out of darkness? And their conclusion was, it would have to be in that equinox. That would be the time that light comes out of darkness. And therefore, if that's when God created the world, then he would send his son, the light of the world, when he's going to redeem it and bring it back to its original intent, he would send him on that day. So that was their assumption. That was their conclusion. That was their argument. And so they began to debate it amongst the early church fathers and scholars, and their conclusion is, then you just count the days out, and you're going to come up with December 25th. Now, you say, well, why would they do that? They would do that because they believe, as it says in uh, the, the passage that they're referring to in Genesis chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, uh, it, it refers to the fact that God communicates sacred holidays through the astral signs in the sky. Uh, let me quote you from the NIV. And God said, Genesis 1, 14, let there be lights, plural, in the vault of the sky to oper- to separate the day from the night. And so they, that they, okay, that's when light and darkness got separated. If that's an important date, then that's what we have to be aware of for that's when the sun the light of the world would come in. And let them serve as, ready, signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, and and it was so. And it's been understood from all the way back into the founding of the Jewish nation that God is communicating many things through the stars, and that's why ancient synagogues, even modern ones, I understand, I haven't been in one, so I can't really say, but that's what I understand, have the zodiac on the roof because they understand that God has the movement of the stars across the heavens to communicate certain things that he's trying to communicate to his people. Think of the Magi. How did they figure out that there was a Christ child going to be born? They were experts in astronomy, and they understood what they were looking at, and there was a special star that all aligned itself properly to reveal to them that the king that was promised that would save the world would be born in that time. And, well, we'll get into it eventually, but if you... I'm not going to get into great detail for this particular podcast, but if you get a previous sermon I did on Christmas a few years back, I go into it, but basically in Revelation chapter 12, we have the astral theology being presented to us. And when you plug all that information that you find in Revelation chapter 12 into a computer program, I have it on my my lap on my iPad, you can You can adjust all of the different constellations to match the constellations that are being presented there by John, the apostle. And when you do that, you find out that Christ was born, this is amazing, 3 BC on September 11th, between 4.20 and 4.40 p.m. on that day. That's exactly what Revelation 12 is saying. And so we understand that, and then... This creates all kinds of positive consequences about understanding New Testament theology because there's a huge debate between which which recounting of the crucifixion of Christ on Good Friday, or that I should say the Last Supper, is correct because there seems to be a difference between the Synoptic Gospels and John's Gospel. And the early church decided to go with John's Gospel. That's generally uh, explained because John was likely working on a, a, a uh, Gentile calendar, while the other gospel writers were working on the Jewish calendar. And so there seems to be a day of separation. But the important thing is, we know historically that Christ had the Last Supper on Passover. It had to be that. And that, that's why it's called Good Friday. And if that's the case, there's only two years in which Christ could have been crucified, either 30 A.D. or 33 A.D. And if it's 33 A.D., then the problem is he's too old. He's 36 years of age. He could even be approaching 37 years of age at that time, and therefore he doesn't match the time period because he began his ministry when he was 30 years of age, and he only was in his ministry for about three years, actually a touch under three years. So the only other date that fits would be 30 AD. But then you'd be too young because you can't start your ministry till you're 30 unless you were born before the ADBC changeover, and he was, that would be September 11th, 3 BC. Awesome, that makes him 33 when he goes to be crucified. It also aligns with Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy, in which he predicted that in 173,888 days, he would march into Jerusalem and be recognized as the Messiah, and that is known as Guess what? Palm Sunday to the day on that year of 30 AD. So everything lines up, Old Testament prophecies, New Testament astral theology, and it resolves the record of conflict between the synoptic writers and the Gospel of John. It all comes together beautifully. Such an incredible date. Well, why... Why, why, would, why is this important? Because God made it known to the people who existed in that time period. That's why the Magi came out to worship him. He's letting everybody know in advance, even the stars in the heaven, pro- proclaiming that Christ is going to be uh, born in Jerusalem at that time, and that's why they came to talk to King Herod. But nonetheless, that's just an example of what we're talking about. So that's why the early church theologians said, okay, we have to figure out when the light of the world came the first time. Okay, that's going to be March uh, 25th. Then uh, the, the second time the light of the world comes in in the form of Jesus, he's, that's going to be the day. And then we just count out nine months, and there he is, right? Now, based on what I just said, you can see that I have a small difference between the early church and t- modern contemporary uh, belief. And that is that I think you actually go back nine months. And you go if you go back nine months, then you realize he actually came into the world on December 25th. And he came out of his mother's womb on September 11th. And so that's a nine-month uh transition, and that would make sense because at conception, life comes into the world. That, because we understand that the moment you're conceived, you're a human being in the eyes of God, and that's why we are against abortions, because we believe it's a real human being from a moment of conception. If this is the case, then December 25th is the day that Christ actually was sent by the Father into the womb of Mary and began life on earth in her womb pretty awesome. And so that's why uh, they they got to it in a weird backwards way, but we get to the same date. It's December 25th is the date. And it's not based on these pagan rituals. It's based on this uh, doctrine and theology. So let me continue reading what our uh, friend was saying. He says, and so there's, here's the thing. The sun after the vernal equinox, the sun enters this victorious phase. The days are longer and the nights are shorter. Now they were, believe it or not, Fascinated by this question. What day did God create the universe? Never mind Christmas. What day did it all begin? What date did God say, Let there be light? Ah, let there be light. Let there be more light than dark. That's got to be the day after the vernal equinox. So, March 25th is when God created the world. And then you put all that together and you understand that's how they got the date of the 25th. Now, they were discussing this centuries before. And so there was no Saturnalia, there was no Sol Invictus until about 245 or something like that. I don't know the exact, I have the exact date down here and I'll tell you in a minute, but it's way, we're talking hundreds of years before that, this is all being discussed amongst Christian theologians. And although they only celebrated the resurrection, they still recognize the birth of Christ And that's an important distinction. And so families would have their personal celebrations, but it didn't get united until a few centuries later because the church actually didn't have a united front. They were being persecuted, and so they kind of hung out in small places all the time and wouldn't have big open festivals. So now we're going to go to Dr. Heiser's information. He says this. Do Christians celebrate the birth of Jesus on December twenty-fifth because that was the day when the Romans celebrated the feast of Sol Invictus, the unconquered sun, as the as the winter days began to get longer again? Or perhaps because that date aligns with the festival of the Yule in the Scandinavian cultures? Are Christmas trees part of the seasonal festivities because some pre-Christian cultures worship trees as deities? Every December, it seems, people commemorate the holiday season with heated debates on these issues and other topics pertaining to the origins of Christmas. Some like to argue that Christmas is almost exclusively rooted in non-Christian and pre-Christian customs. Others are appalled by any notion that any of our beloved holiday rituals were once also beloved by people other of other religions. And so what is the truth of the matter? Well, the question arises, is there evidence before Emperor Aurelian that December 25th was an important date to Christians? Is there evidence of that? If so, then it would appear that this is the fact and what happened, that December 25th, before Emperor Aurelian, so he was the guy that started Sol Invictus and Saturnalia. In fact, he didn't start Saturnalia. It kind of already existed at that time, but he started Sol Invictus. Very important, and there's a reason he did that. Uh, it was important to Christians associated with the birth of Jesus and that the pagans stole it from the Christians, if you understand what took place. So let me read that sentence again from Dr. Heiser. He says, Is there any evidence... in if December 25th was important to Christians, and he says this, it would appear that this is the fact, actually, what happened that December 25th, before Aurelian, was important to Christians associated with the birth of Jesus, and that pagans stole it from Christians. So it's not a pagan date, at least it wasn't until the pagans stole it from the Christians. So the assignment of March 25th as the date of Christ's conception prevailed in the early church. Add nine months to March 25th and you get December 25th. So you see both scholars are in agreement here. Christmas, December 25th, is the feast of Western Christian origin, the Western part of the Roman Empire. The Armenians, think Turkey, The Armenians alone, among the ancient Christian churches, have never adopted it, and to this day they celebrate Christ's birth as a manifestation to the Magi and his baptism all on the same day, January 6th. Thus, the December 25th, as the date of Christ's birth, appears to owe nothing whatsoever to pagan influences upon the practice of the church during or even after Constantine's time. The pagan feast, which was... which the Emperor Aurelian instituted on that date in the year 274 was not only an effort to use the winter solstice to make a political statement, but also almost certainly an attempt to give a pagan significance to a date already of importance to Roman Christians. Here's what he's saying there's this he wanted to consolidate his power when he was an emperor and there was a lot of conflict over his power because he was a worshipper of the sun sol invictus and the other one was the worshipper of jupiter which i mean saturn which is saturnalia so in order to kind of cancel out their party institute a new party consolidate the political power and kind of push the christians to aside he invents this holiday And that holiday is what the Romans celebrated for some time period, not very long, didn't become, didn't really last very long. But that was his whole motivation of doing it. And that now back to Dr. Heiser, he says this, thus it's just math. The early Christian theologians were fixated almost from the beginning of the first century with achieving the correct date for the death of the Messiah. And to do that, they had to figure out his birth. And they were going to more or less follow the track of John's gospel. And I've kind of already explained why that was important. It pulls it all together. And so the quick and simple answer is no, Christians did not steal Christians. Christmas from pagan rituals and try to baptize it and you know uh, co-op it for their own purposes. It's exactly the opposite. It was being co-opted by the Romans in order to p- strengthen the political stature of a particular emperor and to quash the influence of the growing Christian church, which eventually takes over the empire at 313 under Constantine. But nonetheless, that's the true story. The pagans stole it from the Christians, so nanner nanner if you want to say it that way. Then they ask, people ask regularly, and that is, well, is it okay to have a Christmas tree? And their reasoning behind that is uh, we're not supposed to create anything according to the second commandment, anything, any images of heaven above, earth below, or anything beneath the earth. And if you bring a Christmas tree into, into your home, is that what you're doing? And the only answer would be just like Halloween. It's what are you using it for? I have never met anyone, and I've been in a lot of houses with Christmas trees, I have never met anyone that says, could you please stop and worship the Christmas tree here? This is what we're doing. We're worshiping the tree. They're, no, they're decorating their house. They're decorating their house with an evergreen, because if you go back into church history, and not even just just cultural history of the, of the Roman West, they venerated or valued the evergreen and saw it as pleasant because it's always green even in the winter it's green and as a result it's a it's kind of a symbol of everlasting life and when you put the christmas tree in your house i don't think you're worshipping oh, look at we're going to have everlasting life we have a christmas tree in our house that's not what you're doing you're just saying this is a beautiful thing we decorate it, it reminds us of the birth of our savior and we worship our savior and this helps us or encourages us to to keep that memories uh in, in its right per- perspective. And so things like Christmas trees and, and all that, it, it, don't worry about it unless someone's actually literally worshiping it. So you know if you if you go to let's say an ancient church and they all have figures uh, statuary of you know prophets and, and kings and things like that, biblical people, if someone's bowing down to it, that's inappropriate and that should be strongly discouraged because now you're using it as an object for worship. However, if you just recognize it, oh, that's pretty cool, that reminds me of this great event that took place in the Old Testament, that's fantastic, that's what it should be used for. So it always goes back to the heart of the person who's dealing with it, that they they manage it correctly. Then that leaves the third and probably most difficult of all, and that is the man in the red suit, whose name will be mentioned, Santa. The problem with Santa is, and again, it's all up to how parents handle it, it's, Does he distract from Christ and his glory in the celebration of Christmas with your family? If he gets more attention than Jesus Christ and we're actually celebrating Christ, then there's probably an imbalance in how that's being uh, dealt with. But if you're saying, this is just a made-up guy who doesn't really exist, he's just a kind of a fun thing like the tooth fairy, and when he's around at Christmas time, it's just all part of the celebration, but no, he's not real. He doesn't really know whether you're good or bad because he doesn't exist. And as a result of that, we are here to worship Jesus and we can still have fun and see the Santa guy and all that stuff. Put it in its proper perspective, it's fine. But if you're actually allowing it to displace the worship that belongs to Christ, then you have to have some conversations. That's the first problem. The second one may even be more serious, and that is it's difficult as a parent to lie to your child about something for a long period of time and then say, Uh, we were just kidding. That was a big fake lie. Uh, Santa's not real. Now that you're older, we're going to tell you the truth. It was mom and dad that was buying all the presents all along, and that guy doesn't exist. Now you're in a moral dilemma. If you just say from the beginning, yeah, there's no Easter bunny, there's no tooth fairy, there's no Santa, but we play along because we have fun and it makes it more fun for us, you're fine. But if you're lying to them about it, then you have an issue of lying that has to be dealt with, and it's going to have negative consequences in the future. And so from a pastoral perspective, if you want to have Santa engaged, great. That's fine. Just make sure it's in the proper perspective. You don't have to tell lies to cover it up, and that you're actually keeping the focus on Christ. That would be the best thing. And then all the other parts of the Christmas stuff— Again, it's your attitude and how you use them. If you're worshiping those things, then you shouldn't involve them. But if they're just decorations that remind you of great things and the season in which you're celebrating the birth of Christ, our Redeemer, coming into the world to save us from our sins and reunite us to God and redeem us, then it's a great thing. And so I hope you'll have a great Christmas season, and I hope that I give you some things to think about, and I hope that uh, no, you don't get in too many party fights talking about the pagans. God bless you, and I'll see you in the next episode.